Welcome to the podcast, To Sit by the River, conversations with experts on conservation, ecology, hunting, and the wild. I sat down with Hal Herring in his house in the little town of Augusta, where the grassy hills and plains of eastern Montana crash up against the spine of the Rockies. Summer's drought had brought the bears down from the mountains, and they were shitting barley along the creek that trickles through town. Hal is a woodsman and a writer who looks deep and slow at the natural world and our role in it. Wisdom like Hal's is hard to find. He sees complexity and shapes it into a picture that helps his reader make sense of things. He sees the many shades of gray and nevertheless commits to value and decisive action. For that, he is a model for me and I think for us to strive towards as hunters. So, Hal, I'm going to ask some big questions, religious, but neither of us are academics, so we need to start from big and important questions. Gary Schneider said, nature is not a place to visit. It is home. Recently, I took my girlfriend to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and I'd previously been to the more rugged north rim, and I was pleased that despite the level of touristy development on the south rim, the awesomeness of the Grand Canyon abides unencumbered. While I was there, I saw a park ranger, a young woman, reprimanding a little girl for running around off the designated path. She lectured the girl, echoing the signs all over the park, telling her what damage she would do to the microbes of the dirt. I think I see the sort of OCD more and more in our world, a view of sacred land and the sullying human. It disturbs me. Can we still be a part of this, or must we preserve and protect nature as a world separate from ourselves? How do we balance engagement, being a part of this thing, with protecting our shared lands from the heavy steps of so many people. <laughs> so a bit of preamble before yeah. it. Uh, you want me to repeat it? No, that's good. That's a great opening volley. Um, well, I, I don't think that balance is ever fixed. You know, um, it's like the balance in poses in yoga, where they emphatically tell you that balance changes from day to day. And from what you understand, you know, from day to day. Um, if you block people off from the natural world, God, I have an experience exactly like yours as a child, as a, not as a child. Uh, when our kids were little, we had a gal, a really good person, who took them all down to the Teller Wildlife Refuge in the Bitterroot Valley. And the little kids were, the boys were going wild, you know. And uh, one of, they were throwing these rocks in this slough of the Bitterroot River. And the young woman said, stop, stop. You don't, don't do that. That is something's home. And she put an end to like the rock chunking. And the little boys, like, especially the boys, right? They just, they just shut down. Mm -hmm. They were ready for it to be over. Um, so how do I, I think there has to be, it, it's a, this is, it, I used to think there was no such thing as the Anthropocene, you know? of the human oriented like world. Um, but I'm more and more, I'm convinced that there is, this is the Anthropocene that people do have an enormous impact. And so there has to be a way to balance that out. And, and um, there has to be engagement and places where people are fully involved in the natural world. And it is home as Gary Snyder said, mm -hmm. And then there has to be things like, and I, I think we've set some balances, like with Glacier National Park, we mm -hmm. Yellowstone National Park. But um, to be honest with you, 
I have dogs, so I don't go to those places that often. Me neither. Um, and I'm glad that there are places for people who can go and and be visitors, not tourists, mm-hmm. but visitors to vast natural spaces. And then that we have these 640 million acres of places where people can be more of an inhabitant and do like I'm doing with cutting wood and maybe looking for birds. And um, but there has to be both though. And there has to be some places that are, um, there have to be some places that at some point set aside. Like if you have like the last coral root or something, you know, you don't want people going in there and logging that place and, and firewood and driving the truck across the last endangered plant, whatever it is. So you have to, and here, but here's an idea there is it that that requires incredible engagement, which we've had all the way to now in the natural world and like naturalists and, and botanists and people who can tell you, I, I did that interview with Kyle Leibarger down in Alabama. His knowledge of the native plants there is just astounding. And it's the most, the most like un, unprepossessing, undramatic plants that he knows the best. So when you have knowledge like that, we can, we can preserve things that need to be in the biological arc it's a sort of knowledge and depth of place that I feel like you, you don't get as a visitor and you only get if you're there for a purpose. I like hiking, but I don't see you when I'm hiking at the same depth that I do when I'm, when I'm out doing something. And, it's, you know, a sort of maybe negative slant to it is it's consumptive, but uh, that, that consumption takes me so much deeper. That's right. It, it's engagement. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I, I have a friend who ran the Bob Marshall recently from Swan Valley over to here. And I admire that. I was like, holy smokes. It's like a 52-mile run. But, you know, I was like, did you see any <laughs> Did you see any wildlife? And he was like, no. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, you know, no doubt. I remember being up on the Grand Teton one time, and uh, we had done the Upper Exum route. And I ran into some friends of mine, and they were doing the um, Owen Spalding. And that these are different routes on the on the Grand Teton, yeah. and they were going car to car, car to car, and we were crashed out. We'd spent the night up there and, and crashed out in whatever Fairy Meadows or whatever that's called. And uh, I wished I was going down. It was like a hundred degrees, you know. But um, they were car to car, and their experience of that mountain was entirely different. Yeah, and and you said there's some goal of visitation rather than tourism, but do I. Uh, we were talking earlier and you said, uh, if you want to find value, go spend 30 days in the Bob Marshall. Yeah. And I think that that's completely right. And can you, can you find value and can you get that kind of closeness and understanding of the nuance and the value that exists in nature a- as a visitor? I, I think it beats a hell out of nothing. Um, and I think that that for especially, well, no, I wouldn't say younger people, but children, and and then wherever you and I were talking about literature earlier, and and how some books we didn't get to this, but how book, some books come to you at certain times in your life, and if you found that book at a forty year old, it'd be totally different than it was as an eighteen year old, like Jack Kerouac's On the Road or whatever, yeah. you know. And uh, these experiences that people have in nature is the same thing. You never know when you're going to bring a visitor to a place, and then they end up becoming an inhabitant. Um, you open the door and all you can do for people is open the door and, and for them, you, you bring them to the water 
mm-hmm. you know, assuming that they're thirsty. And then who knows what level they're drinking, right? So the answer is all of the above on that. Um, people talk to me about trophy hunting. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> thankfully, I'm not in huge groups of people who don't hunt. <laughs> it, uh, but amongst people who never hunt or are certain purists who just hunt for meat, um, there's no engagement of, in, with landscape like that of a person hunting a, a, a trophy mule deer. Yeah, I've never met people who know as much about mule deer as the right. big buck killers. Yeah, and and I just I have a same way the guy running across the bob. Um, that's not my thing, but um, trophy mule deer is pretty close to my thing. But <laughs> it's engagement in landscape. It is apprenticeship to landscape in a way that you are never. I, I don't think you're ever going to get if you're not hunting. Do you think names are a part of understanding that place? Like, I know a lot of hunters who they're just the most incredible outdoorsmen, but they wouldn't know the difference between the plants. They know the elk eats that plant or not that one, but they don't know the names. And I wonder, coming at it from language, does language affect place? Uh, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I think I think what people are doing in that case are short circuit uh, shorten themselves. Um, you're not demanding enough of yourself. It seems like there's huge shortcuts to be made in the knowledge of others. In, the, in a book, you can you can skip the hundreds of years it would take you to learn, you know, the behaviors of these plants and, yeah. and animals. Uh, in the same way, a basketball coach can say, "Well, you know, if you go around the back here and do this faint, you can you're going to get to the you know to the to the hoop." Uh, I mean, a coach can bring you to that, um, but it's then it's up to you to play. I just just hit you with another Gary Snyder quote because I've been reading this book and I love it. But Which one? The Practice of the Wild? Yeah. Yeah. You read it? Oh, yeah. Uh, the place-based stories that uh, the people tell and the naming they've done is their archaeology, architecture, and title to the land. And I've thought about it coming in my context from the UK and I'm sort of an amputee in that I don't have the place-based knowledge of this land and a lot of my last few years have been spent deepening my knowledge of the place. You've talked a little bit about building a new culture of place. Is that an organic process? Is that something that we we set about to do consciously? Because to some extent, Americans parallel me in a sort of vague way in that we're all new here and we have a raw freshness to our eyes, which I think is a one beautiful thing. But we're also sort of foreign to the depths of the place. Uh, and you will be probably uh, for another few centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the thing about European culture in that was they showed up. We we showed up ready to rename. Um, I mean, it was a uh, it was an entire culture of conquest, which comes from the culture that we came from in Europe, which was one conquest after another. If you ever watched that incredible interactive map of the people sweeping across, mm-hmm. and you see the Mongol horde sweeping yeah. across to like Eurasia and, and then like the, the Celts being devoured by the Romans and then pushing back and they have all those different colors on the map. So we came here with that culture of conquest and um, the, even to the extent of like bringing the wheat to replace the prairie. And it's taken us... Well, I mean, we did it really fast, but we it's taken us this long to start understanding the place that we're at 
And that's due to, to so many catastrophic failures at damming up the Grand Canyon or, you know, at, at the Colorado River and watching it silt in in record time, right? And um, trying to, to learn what, it, what an inhabitant's eye really looks like. And to me, that's the essence. If you look around here, you have all this this Native American, these books, the Keith Washakie's biography and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that I've gotten with my engagement with with Native peoples in that movie, The Public Trust and all, was that there is a... there. Okay, so there wasn't a time when everybody lived in harmony and smoked Native tobacco and, mm-hmm. and had happy times under the stars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And that, that where they didn't poison the wolves when you could get cash for it, you know, mm-hmm. or or manage the Navajo, the grazing on the Navajo Nation today in a way that wasn't going to cause a catastrophe. That's not a thing, right? But there is a thing of, of people who have been in place for thousands of years and that I, and that is something that um, uh, in, amongst the Native Americans I've talked with who pay attention to such things, they do have that. You think it's, it's continued because oftentimes they... Uh on reservations, it feels as if they are as amputated as we are. A lot of people are. Yeah, and and the knowledge has been broken up to such an extent. Is there a return to power? You know, we've named, we've given things our new names, uh, but a, a lot of the time, you know, Thomas Creek doesn't is not doesn't designate no. anything particular about that creek. I don't even know what the original name for Haystack Butte, which is the big monument here, the big. Uh, a promontory yep. that everybody navigates off of. Um, I'm not even sure what that was in, in Blackfeet, which is kind of strange. I mean, mm-hmm. I should know that, right? Because yep. the Blackfeet are not that far back. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, uh, we renamed everything. And I and I think it's very possible that these these places will bear, you know, Chinese names or something <laughs> like that at yeah. some point as well. Maybe as a historian, you should know that. But I think as a as a outdoorsman today, the Blackfoot name may or may not have significance for you. And they would have, you know, things would have been continually renamed as they took on more current significance. That's right. That's right. I mean, I know the Sun River was um, Pile of Rocks River. And I only know that from reading the book Fool's Crow, which is the right. seminal Blackfeet novel. Dear why, why it's called Pile of Rocks. Well, the Pile of Rocks mark the buffalo drives all around here. Okay. And um, the, they, they predate the horse. And so um, that that that's what I think that name is from. Mm-hmm. And there is there are piles of rocks everywhere. There are cairns that mark the buffalo drives mm-hmm. here. They're bison drives, um, and you can see a lot of that. And then you know you can go and see the teepee rings that are like they're very small because they were pulled by dogs. And then you see the transition where they get really big where they're pulled by horses. Um, but the the bison drives here, pile of rocks, are they're marked. Okay. Um, but to go from that, do you need to know the history to appreciate it? I, I think it helps me intellectually to appreciate stuff. Um, I think it helps you on some spiritual level, sort of, to imagine that people have sought the same things. As a hunter, I love occupying landscapes. Like we, we were on the Sag River one time in Alaska. And we were camped in this caribou crossing that literally has been used for like 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. And that felt really good to me to be doing the same thing that yeah. people have been doing for 6,000 years. And you don't have to go far to that anywhere in the United States or in or Mexico or anywhere, but anywhere you, you could do it in England too. Can we think things that we don't have the language for? Yeah. 
You, um, I, I think, uh, well, Derek Jensen has that book called A Language Older Than Words. Okay. And um, I actually think there is that there's plenty of languages older than words. Mm-hmm. And hunting is one of the pr- primary ones. Um, weather, weather is another. Uh, Houndsman spend a lot of time looking at tracks. And it struck me that tracks might be one of the oldest forms of language and that you've got the, the story laid out in front of you. 100%. There's a great Don Thomas story, um, Don being the bow hunter and physician over in Lewistown. And he was in Africa with these Bushmen. And um, I can't remember what they were trying to, to kill, but they were tracking this, um, like, kudu or something. Mm-hmm. And there's this huge stretch of shale rock without a track on it. And the uh, guys were, like, straight across it, no problem. Like, they, they knew exactly where this thing went. And Don was like, holy smokes, like these guys got supernatural ability. This is just, you know, this is just too much to be believed. And he asked, he got through to, to one and he said, how would anybody track this animal across this talus, this shale rock that where there's no track? And the guy goes, well, there's a bush like right over there that they eat. There's one bush. And obviously he went by and he took, he, there's no way they're going to pass that even when being pursued without getting some of that bush. Mm. He bit it. And if we walked over there, we saw it. And Don said, you know, he never even, he didn't notice that the bush was growing out of the shale rock. <laughs> That's the sort of deep knowledge of place that I feel like I'm trying to build and we're all trying to build. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, is you cannot know that and still hunt kudu or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But again, what we're talking about here is a, de- a deepening. It's why that practice of the wild by Gary Snyder is so cool. Mm-hmm. He's talking about you, you know you can you could shoot deer out of a corn feeder in Alabama while watching the Roll Tide football. You can, and you still have the meat. And you have somebody else cut it up for you um, and still have a, bison, a, a venison hamburger. You're still in there. You're still participating, right? But what we're talking about is levels of, of participation. And what you're talking about there is it's the same guy who wants spiritual enlightenment, like, in a one day fest, in a one day, like, um, like guru gathering. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say that, that in pursuit of spiritual enlightenment, that's pretty dangerous. I don't think shooting deer over a corn feeder is dangerous in the same level, but you're shorting yourself in the same way. Mm-hmm. I think, and people react. You know, the pub, the non-hunting public, I think, reacts against what they perceive as shallowness in hunting. I yeah. do too, and I think that's one reason that that recruitment is a little harder mm-hmm. when you take a kid hunting in a in a you know over corn. I'm just using the corn feeder, and I don't. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're you're killing some meat, and which is like I, I mean I do it here. I don't shoot them over corn feeders, but I go out with a rifle and take a doe, and I'm not like blowing tobacco smoke. And I try to be respectful, but mostly I'm there to kill a doe, get back home, get it cut up, yeah. get it in the freezer. So I'm not down in this or putting this down. But one reason when you're recruiting young people to a hunting that that they may not may or may not like. Um, buddy, if you do it superficially, that's where they're going to take it. And they're, they may or may not become hunters because sitting in on, sitting there shooting them over a corn feeder is not taking the full measure of the experience. I'm not saying it's wrong. No. And, and I think that 
as hunters, we are in solidarity with other forms of hunting because it's massively complex. Uh, you don't get the depth. If you go, go to Africa and you pay 10 grand to do a kudu hunt, you don't have any of that knowledge of place. You're paying for an experience, uh, but should you still be able to do it? Of course. Absolutely. And, and there's many, you know, many positive societal factors of doing it. Right. Uh, I don't think we're saying uh, the first. It's era. not a value judgment. No, it's not. Right. Well, is it a value judgment? Uh, I To me, it is a value judgment. Uh, I'm not saying things that are shallower or less important level should be prohibited. But uh, I shot my first deer uh, off a tree stand at my uncle's farm in Georgia. And he had that deep knowledge of place to right. put the tree stand there, yeah. tell me when to go. But, and, and I had a profound experience, uh, you know, sitting in the tree stand for hours. I never heard squirrels so loud as on those crunchy leaves. But, and, and, and it was profound, but it wasn't as profound as when I killed my first deer in Idaho after living in the mountains for two years and and knowing it and beginning to know it. Uh, so I, I think it is a value judgment, but it's not a uh, restriction on something. Right, right. I'm, I'm very careful about uh, telling other people what they ought to value. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because one thing, uh, the diversity of, of experience and opinion is, is, is incredibly important. Um, but that thing you're talking about, that tree stand, mm. uh, I was never good at that. I was never a good whitetail hunter because I can't stand to sit. Mm-hmm. But on the few times that I've made myself sit and I've killed, you know, not big whitetails, but pretty good ones. Mm-hmm. And um, that was what I got was was birds, squirrels. Absolutely. Like I remember seeing a, um, a little brown skink. It's a tiny lizard. And this is Alabama, right? So it's still warm. And it's just like moving these leaves. And I, I had seen those things before moving a woodpile, but I've never seen one going about its business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I had no idea I was there, didn't give uh, a shit. And like, it's going about its business. Uh, and, and when I, are you going to see it unless you sit unless four hours in a that's tree? Right, right. right. It's amazing. It's wild. Yeah. Um, the things that you can see. And I learned from that. Like I sat up here on this buffalo jump and watched this bull snake do that. And I learned that from being a kid. Somebody said, this is how you hunt whitetails. You sit there and you don't cause a ruckus and your mind's going to wander. Mm-hmm. And then you bring your mind back, you know? And I was, I'll tell you what's weird about that too is uh, you can mistake a million things or a, a thousand things for a deer running through the leaves but when you hear the deer coming through the leaves, it doesn't sound like nothing else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a, that in itself. Where would you learn that? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's some metaphor there, but mm-hmm. I don't want to do take it there. But there's some metaphor there that that to, for life. So I think we're kind of touching on this. But I have a question: of Why do you hunt? It? I mean, if we can go and sit in the woods and meditate on nature for two hours and draw these deep conclusions, if you could go out as a botanist and study the plants and, you know, garner your depth there, if depth is a sort of goal, why, what does hunting add to it? Well, I think people do that. Mm-hmm. They, botanists definitely do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're there for a different reason. They're there for um, knowledge and, and understanding and, and perhaps spiritual enlightenment with their relationship with plants. Um, my sister doesn't hunt, but she has, she does like United Plant Savers. And she has this incredibly deep relationship. And then she's a painter, so she's painting them. Like, if you look at these pictures, yeah. um, that's a whole nother, like, level of depth. But her son, my nephew, is a is a real hunter. And he grew up with me 
hunting. And um, we are, we don't know the plants like my sister does, but we're after, we're going to try to kill something. And we're following in, like when I see like coyotes and wolves and wolverines, like they're my tribe. Mm -hmm. Like, like, so I, and and my sister, although she loves animals, she doesn't think that in that way. And so I'm, I'm looking at like, I very seldom see wolves. But like when I see wolves, I think of that. It's like, this is, we're here. We all live here. And periodically we take one of those grassy eaters. And someday we'll be the grass. We'll be back integrated into this system in our atoms and we'll be dead. But for now, our role here is like predation, right? I'm a, I, I'm a, I've been a predator as long as I've been awake. Yeah. I think that, that that's it, right? Why why do you hunt as opposed to be just a observing? I don't it's, know. It's a sort of deep feeling that you can't, uh, you know, uh, a playing out of your natural role. In the natural world. role. It feels right. And um, I'm I, um, I might have been at one point like hesitant to pull the trigger and stuff like that. I'm not sure. I can. I think so. But um, when things are right, hunting. And and when they're wrong, it's hard to it's hard to do it. Like it's it's a it's a strange thing. But when things are right and you get that, like you got a cow tag, you're in a public land, you know it's legal, everything's good, you're way back, you you make that shot. It is it's right. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a wolf pulling down that animal and feeling this is a hundred percent the world is in its orbit. Yeah. And I'm in the place. Yeah. It's an enormous value. It's an enormous uh, value. And then you eat and yeah. you get stronger, more powerful. <laughs> yeah. And you go and do it again. And then like, and, and the faith that you have delivered to that animal is the faith which awaits you. And so I, I, there's a, there's a unity of purpose here. And it's, it's amazing. I don't, um, I, I, I don't intellectually grasp it a hundred percent, but the, the, the feeling of being in the current, being carried to where you need to be is, is, Undeniable. We talked about that a little bit earlier in terms of the muddy waters of our, you know, human world. And right. there is an enormous clarity that comes. And I think that, you know, the hunting puts you firmly in the place. And I don't know about botany and things like that, whether whether you're as present in that or whether it's a sort of venturing out and returning, which we do as hunters, you know, yeah. it, and it's immensely fulfilling. But uh, in you are... <laughs> Cliche, but you're very, you know, present, present. when you're hunting. And that, and, and in a sense, it's a, like that. It's a meditation, right? Yeah. The beauty of it is, though, um, I, I think a meditation. And if you look at the 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 blue triangle or whatever people meditate on, I, I don't do that. But um, and you sit in uh, shazin or whatever they put in yourself in an uncomfortable position and you meditate. <laughs> um, you had a point earlier um, that is about your own self and awakening yourself perhaps a larger currents right mm. but what we're talking about is a little bit beyond self yeah. it's immersion in a, in a system that is so large so incomprehensible um that you know you you can only speak of it really in religious terms i think so my, uh, my friend was trying to teach me it was a failure to meditate and he said, listen to the things which are going on around you. Listen to, and you know, I was, I was always thought, oh, this is a sort of new agey, self, you know, self-fulfilling thing to do, you yeah. know. Uh, and 
that's what we're doing as hunters all the time. And I think that for me, hunting blends amazingly the uh, the relativity you get when you're exposed to all these things that elk is living there year round. And you think about how can it make it up there on the mountain right. in this deep snow and I'm in my house and I'm warm and I'm, this is where I am in relation to the elk. But, but it also pulls an, a clear value from that relativity. And for me, it's enormously fulfilling and gives me a lot of purpose in life for that reason. Yep. And, and also it awakens you to a, a deeper being like, like that, and I, I like sometimes I, we were talking about that. I, sometimes I like thinking of places that I've seen, like hunting and stuff. When it's like, say, it's forty degrees below zero here, you know, and I think, wow, I wonder what that place is like right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder what's in there, like, and and like, what's that? What's that band of mule deer does that I watch go by? Where are they now in this awful night? You know, or it is it awful? It's not awful. It's just cold, right? But it's um, where are they? And so I have relationships oh. built there that I would not, I, I, I don't understand meditation so much, but I don't think I would get it by sitting in meditation. Yeah. I, I wouldn't either. And I think that that's why we hunt and, you know, other people meditate. meditate right. It's more power too. Yeah. You know? the, I think that part of that, you know, thinking about that dough in the hard winter, that winter, that night is awful for you. You right. know, when you put yourself there, but it might not be awful for the dough. And that's a very hard thing for us to understand from our sort of human centric right. mind. How can that possibly, you know, how can they be thriving in this? Yep. Uh, and that's an enormous relativity, which, you know, it gives you a lot of perspective on different things exist. Well, anthropocentrism is, a, is just like if you're meditating and you're, you're playing on your phone. Hmm. I mean, I mean, to consider another Derek Jensen book is the myth of human supremacy. Hmm. And, um, that, uh, to consider people uh, as separate or or the the height of some type of development is probably to miss the point. I mean, you're you know if you you watch those grizzly bears digging those roots or moss or whatever. I mean, you're just not supreme. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you may be able to outwit them in some way, but a lot of times you wouldn't even be able to do that. Yeah. It's just not supreme, and and uh, part of part of hard hunting real hard hunting is to disabuse yourself of the myths of your own supremacy. When you're waist deep in snow and you yeah. hear the wolves howling around you, you get that yeah. feeling awful quick. And you're cold. wondering if you're, you know, like if you're law, you get lost or you, you, you just, you're just in it. And that there is there, that disabuses you of your own supremacy because you know how you, you can look at rock and then look at flesh. And you're like one, one is just not going to, it's one that's not going to yield to the other. Right. Or, or real cold. I, I mean, I grew up in Alabama, and I understand real heat, and I understand real cold from being here 33 years. But real cold will humble, yeah. humble you. I think there's a humility that any, whether whether it's the desert, the ocean, the or desert, the mountains, another one. Uh, nature provides the humility. All you have to do is go. Yep, that's right. Yeah. The meditation is, is, is your own insignificance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And it's a beautiful metaphor, though, because at the same time, you are it, as as a hunter and a predator. If you 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 are significant, you're taking the life of, of something else in the in the fabric with you. Yeah, you know what Henry Beston called the other nations of, of animals that travel through this the joy and travail of this earth. Yeah, you are significant in your in your three score and ten. You're as significant as as anything. And you can you can count yourself by the 
I, I think that this would be unpopular with people who think of trophy hunting, but I think part of the allure of trophy hunting is that you're measuring your life by the significance of these animals you've interacted. You know, it's enormously important to take harvest this doe. And I think people feel with a mature buck or a bull or something like that, uh, there's a weight that, you know, taking this, I, it seems like a perfectly organic way to measure your life to me. Yep. That's why people painted it on red ochre in the cave walls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've got a quote from Ed Abbey. As I typed these words several years after, this is on Arches, after the little episode of the Grey Jeep and the Thirsty Engineers, all that was foretold has come to pass. You will now find serpentine streams of Baroque automobiles pouring in and out in numbers that would have seemed fantastic when I worked there, from 3,000 to 30,000 to 300,000 per year. The visitation, as they call it, mounts ever upwards. So we kind of talked about this already a little bit, but the question is about accessibility versus wilderness. We've got increasing numbers of e-bikes, roads, campers in the most remote places. And, and, you know, you'll see the flat screen TVs and putting greens on the roof of the camper. And it seems like to me that the pendulum has swung very far towards accessibility for everyone is sort of a reflection of the cultural zeitgeist right now. How do we balance the wilderness and accessibility so that everyone gets a shot so that they can experience nature? Because we need stakeholders, right? Right. With also preserving what is, you know, so great about being there. Right. That's a, Well, I mean, that's the question of the day. I mean, um, you're asking the, the essential question of the day. And um, my answer to that is, thank God for the 1964 Wilderness Act, which settled some of these questions before they became caught on fire. Mm -hmm. Um and thank God for the, the concept of the national parks from 1872, which was incredibly not just controversial. People hated it. Um, you know, uh, that was the Yellowstone National Park was established in 1872. And one of the things that I'm going to pontificate for a little bit. Sure, uh, one of the things that happened there, if you notice, the 1964 Wilderness Act was written by Howard Zonheiser, who is not a hunter. But it was it was David Brower of the Sierra Club, um, who who was not a hunter either, but he he knew about hunting and the, and um, these were people who uh, they're reacting to the mutually assured destruction nuclear apocalypse of of the Cold War, um, really and truly. The sixty four Wilderness Act had been in had been being worked on for like ten years, mm -hmm. and people were looking they were they were questioning human beings' capacity for making the right decisions on landscapes and in everything else. And how could you not? Like we were talking about absolute destruction of the planet with nuclear warfare. And so, and if you look at the the foundation of, of Yellowstone National Park, which um, George Black has written a great book about that, Empire of Shadows, I think it's called. And it's really controversial. And, and, and one of the guys who was one of the most instrumental in it was um, Doan. He lived right out here. Um, he was an instrumental in the Marais massacre of the Blackfeet on the on the Marais River north of here, mm -hmm. and he got the wrong like the, 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 the massacred the wrong band of Blackfeet. It was a it was not just it, it was emblematic disaster and and slaughter. Um, it was so ugly that it, it's one of the uglier stories of the Indian conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was a big advocate for Yellowstone National Park. He 
He believed that the better angels of our nature could could provide a haven for the last of the big game and 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 preserve this land and all. There were many people who were involved in that. Um, I think Ulysses S. Grant would have been the president. We were coming out of slaughtering 620,000 combatants in a question over over uh, slavery and not just states' rights. It was mostly it was mostly the creation of a feudalist society in the South versus an egalitarian society in the United States that Jefferson and them believed in. We, we just slaughtered each other. We burned down an entire like section of our country over this. And what, how many years later? Five, seven years later, we create the world's first national park. Those things are not unrelated. So the better angels of our nature, as, as Abraham Lincoln called it, were calling us to recognize the value of nature at a time when we were most incredibly destructive. And so that has carried on to now. Okay, so we have the national parks in place and they are overwhelmed at times. We have the wilderness areas in place and people still hate them <laughs> yeah. right around here. Yeah. And what they want instead, I don't know. But we settled these questions and we will settle this one as well. Not without conflict. Is it a question which which ends? Is it just an internal no, conflict? No, but it does end when the United States reaches a maximum population and perhaps begins to slowly decline in population, or when another culture is, takes over and decides that these things are not worth preserving. Um, and industrial recreation, like you see around Moab, it does make people think that maybe this is not, the public land stuff is not going to work out. Um, but it, these are, my, in my opinion, these are small areas of conflict. And over most of, say, the Lewis and Clark National Forest, where I spend most of my time, we don't have that conflict. Yeah. So we do not want to judge the efficacy or the, the durability of the entire model by these micro areas, however large they may be, that are overwhelmed with people. Yeah. It's, it seems like for a long time the model was uh, people, you know, people would tourist or visit certain sites and there was enough sites that That's right. uh, the population didn't overwhelm them. And these days I hear a lot of where I'm at, I never, I've, I've never seen another hound hunter while I've been hunting. I've right. never seen, you know, I don't see people, but I think my perception is based on what I'm hearing that there's a lot more recreators of various sorts out because of COVID. And it may be that the population is now overrun, you know, Yellowstone and Big Bend and the Grand Canyon. Yep. And the, it's who are we to you know claim these spaces as hunters, but also how do we how do we retain them? It's going to be hard. Um, it was hard to get the wilderness act passed. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be very difficult in the future because the space you need for for hunting, especially like hound hunting, um, and again you see California is emblematic. Like yeah. like people have just just acted against it. Um, there's a huge fight going on, and I don't know enough about it, over in like England and Scotland now yeah. about hunting and about the preservation of the the giant hunting estates. Um, my friend Tony Bynum was over there filming. They're working on a film on that. Um, but there, it's going to be extremely difficult. So here's one of the things that I keep coming back to is <clears throat> I believe that we are at a time of what's called human eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. It's when a species 
explodes out of its carrying capacity for its its uh, ecological niche. And people are so adaptable. We're like Norway rats. We can we we really do well in a lot of different climates. We change things to set ourselves up to a point until you run out of water, you know. But uh, that eruption doesn't last forever. And I believe that if we can act with diplomacy, aggression, um, intelligence, compassion, all of these things necessary, that we can navigate this time. And the eruption will end. And I don't think it ends in nuclear bombs and shit like that. It just birth rates decline. And and we will have a a group of people. I, I like to think about it. Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, where the little boy keeps asking, Are you carrying the fire? That's what his dad always says. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like the we're not, we're like some, we're the good people. They're not the cannibals, right? They're not the guys running up and down the roads murdering everybody. We're carrying the fire. And I believe that that hunters who are deeply engaged in landscape and, and conservation and in their meditation in, on this thing we're talking about, I believe that those people can teach their children and, or other children and they can carry the fire. And I believe that wilderness advocates and botanists and, and people like that, they are on that they're carrying the fire. And Native Americans who, who have the older eye, the inhabitants eye on, on the, the, land and I've met them. They're they're real. Yeah, yeah. Um they're carrying the fire. And at some point this thing begins to go down, the human expansion. And we're gonna need the people who remembered how to do the regenerative agriculture <laughs> and hunt the elk and be immersed in landscape and probably know if maybe make gunpowder or build a beautiful bow. You know, we're going to need those. And so I, I I think that the conflict is worth embracing and attempting to to navigate this time because it's not going to last forever. Do you navigate through the edifice of the state? Is this public policy? Because you mentioned Wilderness Act, you know, creation of national We parks. don't have it there. <laughs> so I, you might have, if you listen to my, my stuff and you look at my library, so I came from this as an anarchist. Hmm. As a, as a child, I was an anarchist. As a teenager, I was an anarchist. I was an anarchist in, into my 20s, where I believed that the, the power of the state was that of a tyrant and usurper. But then I started like really climbing in the Bitterroots and learning the history of the Bitterroot Mountains in, in Montana and going down to the Humbug Spires, which is all Bureau of Land Management land climbing. And I'm like, I'm hunting. I'm climbing, skiing in the winters, and then my kids are born, and we're all out on the Lewis and Clark National Forest. Those things don't exist without the mechanism of governance. But I don't think that anarchism suggests no governance. Uh, Idealistic anarchism does. Oh, yeah. The the thing which has struck me coming from the UK to here is I spend my life with these guys who their whole existence is hunting on public land. There's no access to private land, all these various things. And, you know, they rail against the government and socialism, you know, their feeling of over governance. And I totally get that. Uh, there's not I feel truly free when I'm on public land and nothing has struck me so much as uh, an institution of democracy. And to me, a sort of it's the federal part is obviously not our an, anarchistic, but uh, it is a. It is the most socialistic or anarchistic element of the country that I've experienced. And it's both. Yeah, it's both. And and there's a there's a book. Um, 
called The Narrow Corridor. Darren Asamuglu is one of the writers. And it's state societies and the fate of liberty. And the narrow corridor is a government that exists by and for the people within the narrow corridor. Okay. And what it does is it places like the sideboards on like out of control profiteering schemes. Um, it, 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 and the narrow, it falls out of the narrow corridor into kleptocracy or despotism most often. And these guys, um, God, I'm, I'm going to find this copy of this book before we leave, but, um, they spent a lifetime studying failed states. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they concluded was that the United States has occupied, the United States method of governance has occupied the narrow corridor of efficiency and, and it actually works a lot of the time and work all the time. I mean, we could sit around forever and point out the failures. But when you look at the public lands, they were, they were totally created by choice against huge opposition to keep this in a narrow corridor where they work for most of the people. And then the people who I know, they like, they'll, they'll be living, quite a few of them are poor, and they hate the government, they hate the Forest Service, they hate the BLM. And I'm going like, what would you rather have? And they don't have an answer to that. And, and, I'm, and I'm like going, you know, what exactly is your plan? And they don't have one. And if it were left to these, these folks who are so angry all the time at government, and they've been taught to be angry at government by those, if you look at like the Koch Brothers Network or uh, Jane Meyer's book, Dark Money, they have been systematically taught, all of us have, and I bought into some of it myself, that the government is the problem, like Ronald Reagan said. Well, government is the problem in some ways. Government's definitely the problem if you want to dump your chicken grease into the Mulberry Fork of the river in Alabama because there's a rule in government that says you can't do that because the people downstream are going to choke on it. So the government is definitely the problem if you are the Tyson company that wants to get rid of a billion gallons of chicken grease. And we've been taught instead that the government is, is tyrannizing us. But I used to ask like the Bundy people a lot. I'd say, where is the tyranny? Like, like, do you know what tyranny looks like? Do you know what, you know, real concentration camps look like? Real jails? But they do know something real. And that was striking Tell to me. me because they're willing, to, they were, it seems like, willing to die for something. And that's real enough. There's some sort of real impulse they're responding to. You know, what is it? I, 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 it's, it's, I don't know. That's, that's, that's uh, your you're supposed to be the answer man. Uh, what? Why? Uh, over all the time I've interviewed the the anti-government people, they pick out the failures of governance. And um, you weren't here in the '90s, like you're young, but there was Ruby Ridge and Waco. Yeah. Um, the FBI did some terrible things uh, during J. Edgar Hoover to conservationists like Bernard Deboto, who was like, the, yeah. like one of the greatest defenders of the public lands. Um, we, we, if you want to look for government malfeasance it, or waste, it's not hard to find. But to concentrate on that and to ignore the honest successes of this model is to, it, it's to court disaster, I can tell you. Um, you have to acknowledge that there would be no public lands without a federal government. So where are we in the narrow corridor? Are we in the corridor right now? Well, they, 
also we we are we're we're sort of in the corridor. What they talk about is the Red Queen effect, where you have to run the population, the American people in this case, we're talking about, have to run as fast as they can to stay in the same place. Because uh, the natural the natural state of, of giving people power over others is that they abuse that power. And the natural state of that, and that's the essence of anarchism, right? Don't give them the power in the first place. And I think something that the occupiers at Mount here would have said, yeah, absolutely. But but I asked them, they are not paying their grazing fees, but I asked them who would own the Mojave Desert if it wasn't that the federal government had taken it had had kept those lands after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1846. Um it, if they hadn't if the federal government had not safeguarded those lands in some some extent, Mr. Bundy wouldn't be on them. He he has 160 acres deeded on the Virgin River. He he doesn't have an army. I mean, even Preston Nutter was one of the major cattlemen of the uh, late 19th century, and he ran cows all over, like the Arizona Strip, like like all over Southern Utah. He he was not Latter Day Saints, but he was a a huge entrepreneur. And even he said, without an army, I can't run cows. We have to have a solution. And the solution ended up being the Taylor Grayson Act of 1934, which went on to turn the general land office into the Bureau of Land Management. And and that was because people just killed each other over the grass. Yeah. And and it wasn't like Mr. Bundy or Mr. Kyle or me that was going to run cows out there. It was whoever had the, the biggest clout. And a bunch of your people came over here from feudal England. <laughs> like from feudal England. Yeah. And they reestablished a, a form of feudalism in Wyoming, which led to the Johnson County War of 1892. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they, they killed people who attempted to file on their, their water. And if they could control the water, they didn't have to pay taxes on the, on the grasslands. They could just run the cows on it. And then they had like serfs that came that they were like cowboys, but they considered them serfs. They were recreating jolly old England and the Enclosures Act, which drove so many people over here. They were recreating. And if you read the narrow corridor, one of the first places that government falls off out of the corridor into is feudalism. Mm. And if you read the corner crossing thing down in Wyoming, where that guy's got 61 square miles and he's, ready to sue these guys $7 million a piece for bruising his airspace to get to public land, you see the new feudalism. And so the corridor is shifting now. But but we have been through this before, is what I'm saying, with, with the over-recreation on the lands. We, we saw not recreation before. We saw whole-scale destruction. There seems to be something new about it, which is that it's a cold and savage feudalism. If you, you know, in European feudalism, it's deeply rooted in place because of technology at right. the time, right? Yeah, and, and it's sort of contractual. Uh, it's not democratic, but there is some sort of give and take. Right. Whereas when the Wilkes brothers buy up, you know, how many acres in Montana and, and Idaho, uh, they, they, they have, they're not even anchored in place. And so they don't, there doesn't seem to be any sort of reciprocal responsibility, that's true. How, however unequal that would be. That's true. No, that's true. But let's, if you went back to Genghis Khan, when the horde came in, they didn't care about your sense of place or what you call the river either. Yeah. You know, they stacked them up. The people who, who caused trouble, they stacked them up and then they renamed the 
Town Square, you know, Genghis, Genghis Happy Place. Yeah. But if we're, <laughs> if we're in China and Genghis Khan is at the doorstep, we know what to do. It's very clear. And I think that yeah. uh, we're not in that sort of, uh, the, the clarity of conflict is not there, although maybe it's emerging. I think it's emerging. Um, and one of the things you'll see is um, it, this is the anarchism versus state power versus governance um, is uh, you you find people. This is actually happening with natural gas right now and the export of natural gas we're talking about. Um, you find people who use the power of the state to then pervert the the game in their their way. Right. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's old as, as the hills. But they use that they're the when the Wills brothers buy that and I and I, I can't ever say who who told me this, but I was a person who involved in, in governance. And they said, you know, we believe in private property rights to the max. It's, it's sacred, private property rights. It, it is. And and the deed, which is guaranteed by government, by the way, it's mm-hmm. it's a piece of paper that we agree that the the government will enforce. But private property is a sacred value here in the United States. But the questions emerge when someone owns three quarters of your county. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and who has the right to use this road or that road, right? It almost feels like a, a new Gilded Age in those actions. It is a new Gilded Age. Pendulum and push and pull. It is. It is. It is a new, yeah, I, I definitely did. Now, one Gilded Age is not like another. No. But the, the closest example that we can have in American history so far is the 1892-3 Gilded Age. And one of the things that happened there was uh, economic collapse because the railroad speculating. And then it was the rise of Teddy Roosevelt. By chance, to some extent, the rise of Teddy Roosevelt. By chance. Uh, it seems like the system is built to prevent that from happening. I think that you know, a lot of these concerns are, I think, the same concerns that are turning people on at Malheur. And I think the question is, for them and, and for us is, is is the country too big? Is, is the If our nature is to try to wrest power and use it in malevolent ways, is the system out of control? And for those people, they feel like it is and they want to respond with a sort of localism. I think the paradox there was that they weren't actually rooted in, Malheur seemed completely arbitrary and they didn't actually defer to the authority of the county. No, they didn't. They, In fact, they said they believed in the county county supremacy. Mm. But when Dave Ward, the sheriff, asked him to stand down, they said, no, nah, we, don't, we, we don't believe in that anymore. Like, like they, they, don't, they, they don't believe in, they, you, it's a mistake to try to parse the Bundy movement beliefs Mm-hmm. anything beyond that this is just what they want to do at this time it serves them best mm-hmm. it's it's kind of sad because i went there looking as an as an old-time anarchist i went there looking for people who mm-hmm. would be of interest and it turned out that their beliefs and stuff were they were they were either ridiculous like QAnon type stuff mm-hmm. there was a lot of that <laughs> my dog has got a face full of dust but there was a lot of that kind of just absurd conspiracy theory and then there was a lot of simply self-serving stuff and and also megalomania to the max like where ammon was giving people like stock tips and i mean Mm -hmm. not tips on on why regulating the stock market was wrong and Mm -hmm. he didn't know anything about stock market than that dog over there sneezing Mm -hmm. and yeah although it seems contradictory 
I, you know, we can look to it from a public lands perspective. They've built an unusual coalition, and you, I, what I want to find there may not be there. Right. But it's like, uh, who are the stakeholders? And and to some extent, it's a strange, bizarre thing because theirs is, you know, different politically. But the the ranchers are, you know, parallel stakeholders to hunters, and that's the coalition that you hope to build to push back against. You know, whether it's government or corporate overreach, uh, they seem right. to see one side of the picture, which is government overreach versus the other. But um, Government overreach and, and this idea of out of control, that's always going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Like like government is always going to overreach and then people are going to have to, the, the people who comprise the government in the United States are going to have to push back. And then they're, they're so you're never going to have a time, thank the Lord where the United States of America is all peaceful. I mean, I, I associate like peace and harmony and stuff with with like um, Pyongyang, where if you get out of hand, you know, these guys come and they sweep you away at night and then you're dead. So we're not going to have that. Now, when you ask, is the country too large? Is it too big, too diverse, too, too um, like like Andrew Sullivan writes about, like do- democracies fail when they become, the, they abandon all concept of hierarchy. And that's possible. All concept of hierarchy. Like I'm better than you, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Okay. Um. Uh. Like the way we had, like, like uh, in the 1950s, where most most uh, African Americans, most Hispanics, most women were not in the job market. You know, and, and the and the white guys, even if you're pretty mediocre, you had a pretty good job, and you're like, well, I can tell you what's going to happen. You know, I'm Ward Cleaver. Um. And uh, that we did. We have we have left that. Mm-hmm. And there are dangers to leaving that. There are also incredibly good reasons to leave it. So we we move ourselves forward into this future of unknowns, and that's good. Like you ask, is the Gilded Age now? Gilded Age is a is a. This is the best representation of a new Gilded Age, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like the one in 1893 because mm-hmm. that one had a population of about 70 million people, and it was incredibly hierarchical. So this Gilded Age has a totally different feel. Some of the similarities are there. You know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. It seems like contradictory forces can, you know, push and pull each other in a useful vortex. And there's a locus of things as long as they uh, are getting it. There's some common goal. I think the difference between ruling by consensus and ruling by compromise, right? Like we're in a small tribe. We can rule by consensus because we're all pulling or pushing towards the same thing. We have to rule by compromise because you're a rancher and I'm a miner and you want different things. It it seems like when those forces get out of control, the whirlpool comes apart or the tornado dissolves. It does. And and that's a real possibility. It happens all the time to people. Look at Venezuela. I mean, look at Venezuela. A very, very... It's a. It was a good country, <laughs> and it, and the whirlpool came out of control. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, um, I mean, you look at Russia, right? I mean, who who has Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Akhmatov, the greatest writers of our, you know, of of, of literature, the greatest thinkers, uh, some, and and that country totally spun out of absolute control. Anthony Bourdain told me one time that um, the very brief time I met him was um, that he said I, I don't really go there now. One, because I don't want to drink that much vodka, which is part of the socializing. He said, but the other is, it's like, it is one of the most inscrutable countries, how it produces the greatest thinkers 
and then these just absolute disasters all around, right? And I think that's a cautionary tale for us and, and as Americans. But um, before we leave that, it's, it's, um, it's the, the consensus idea is only up to about 165 people. If you ever look at the Gore-Tex model or read Malcolm mm-hmm. Gladwell's The Tipping Point, after that, you have to have like elected bosses and and people have to people have to decide that we're going to listen to Joe or Jill or whatever, you know. And we can't listen. We're we're no longer all a single tribe after 165 people. It seems like a hundred a, a human thing. Mm-hmm. And so we're at 339 million here. So I believe that the future here. <clears throat> I was in Utah, for instance, since the state land board has been selling off so many state lands, the hardcore Utah people, anti-government type, they've decided, a lot of them, that they want the feds to keep the lands. They're changing because the state has been selling off so much, much of their grazing, but they want the feds to not do anything that they don't want them to do. And so that, they're going to be disappointed. So is there an element of local? It, it, it maybe let's go with that localism idea from yeah. Maybe public lands. Uh, it's it seems like with so many local stakeholders. You know, back in the day they said Yellowstone. There's you know a couple thousand people living on the fringes of Yellowstone. Right. Uh, are there so many stakeholders that more power has to be that we can retain a system of public lands, but power should be divested to more of a local level? Your local BLM office. And you get into tough questions of funding at that point, but your local BLM office is more responsive to the needs of the community if it's sort of uh, more autonomous from the federal government. Right. So th- there's the problem with that first you talk about is funding, hmm. because if these lands made a lot of money, they wouldn't have been in public hands now. Right. Like if you could graze as many cows on the on eastern Montana BLM lands as you graze in Coleman County, Alabama, those lands would be private. They would have been claimed a long time ago. They would have been given away in the Homestead Act, and they would now be in private hands. Just like any of the river bottom land is not public, it's private. Mm-hmm. Right? So that you, you cannot fund these things locally. And the other thing is, is local control was sold as a, as a great idea for a long time by so-called conservatives or right-wingers, right? As long as the locals wanted to have all the trees cut down. Mm-hmm. Or the big mine go in. But as soon as the locals in Colorado began to make ordinances about fracking within their city limits and stuff, the Colorado legislature voted to, to take local control away from them. And so the euphemism of local control has been more exploitation, more pillage. Right. Now, if you had locals who wanted the right kind of stewardship, you would still have somebody who at Rio Tinto, who came in and said, I'm going to give you a swimming pool. I'm going to give you a new school bus system, a brand new ambulance. You're all going to get a chicken in every pot for the rest of your lives. And that that mine would go in, even if it was at the headwaters of the Smith River. Yeah, I mean, it's happening in Salmon, Idaho. Yes. But again, uh, but something that... Is that a bad thing that we would would abandon conservation? Well, Because the locals can't, the locals get rewarded now. I mean, Devoto said that the, the move on, on, on the public lands will always be for the devolution of control from federal to state mm-hmm. and from state to local, whose entities can be coerced in a way that the federal government allegedly cannot be. I'm going to add allegedly. 
but but a, and a very real coercion in that you need you, you know it's it's money to live right yeah uh, something that struck me in the Malheur occupation is that there were some people on on the local side getting on board with it because they felt their voices had not been heard and there's a sort of uh, economic depression it's not as bad out here as I've got family in upstate New York and well I don't I don't want to make a comparison but you know yep uh, and. To be heard and to be cared for, I think, and and to have some power. That, there were people who were being forgotten, and if Without they're forgotten, they're going to sell what they have, and they're going to be angry. Yeah. So the the answer is yes. The answer is um. The, you know what? At the mile here, they had been working for years on that coalition of grazers and water users and all that stuff that the Bundys didn't know anything about, and um they. Anger, the anger, if you're angry about something that's really happening, I'm good with it. If you're angry about the pizza parlor with the pedophiles in some town in New York that you never heard of, then that's misplaced. And so much of what we, like, you know what I mean, the Pizzagate thing that would turn out to be a conspiracy theory that no didn't idea, exist. But... Yeah, well, there's all these things that don't exist that we use to generate anger and votes and all this stuff in this age of information and misinformation if you are acting on i had these ranchers in nevada and they were telling me they had they had a drought and the blm had made a blanket closure of some rangelands in order to protect the land and they reduced the animal unit months Mm -hmm. but the truth the truth i'm using air quotes the truth was is in these certain localized areas that drought had not been particularly impactful and these guys all knew it. So the problem with the BLM edict mandate, overreaching federal mandate, was that it was dispossessing them of the chance to make a, a fairly decent year with these cows. And it didn't have a positive effect on the management of the land. So I don't know who was right or wrong in this. However, they said if we had more BLM employees that we could talk with in this office and we had they had were totally funded so that they could bring these range riders out and we could show them what we're talking about. We believe that BLM management could be more positive all around. Mm -hmm. So what we've done in the United States is to deprioritize the funding for our public land management agencies, and we deprioritize the health of these lands. And at a time when we should have been putting that way up high as an issue of national security and, and resilience. When you've got a lot to be made from the privatization of public lands, is it a coincidence that public agencies are defunded? Defund and decries yeah. has been the method of, of privatization for the since Reagan. Is, do you think that there are co- uh, conscious strategies at play or is this sort of the working out of... There are, conscious, there, there are both. Mm-hmm. It's both. So one of the things that happened in the 1990s that I'm writing about right now in my book is the environmentalists were were horrified, like at the spotted owl thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the timber companies were cutting 5.2 billion board feet of, of lumber on the national forests because that was the last of the old growth in, in the on the coast range and, and yeah. on the Pacific coast. So the debate became about the spotted owl because that was the way that the environmentalists could actually bring a halt to this overcutting. And then everybody was like, spotted owl against jobs. But it was really about the sustainability of that level of cut. And you couldn't cut that much. So dig this though. So we're at this place where those lands, the, the, the sustainable 
use of those lands for the mill workers and everybody else was not prioritized. The immediate profits were prioritized. That's a failure of governance. And and during the 90s, though, the environmentalists started hating the Forest Service. The loggers started hating the Forest Service. Everybody started hating the Forest Service. And one of the things that Congress recognized was my voters are not motivated by voting for the health of the Forest Service. And so they didn't. And so there was a defunding of, of the U.S. Forest Service then by various means and the Bureau of Land Management because people were not, you and me, were not at that time, were not voting with the public lands management and funding as a priority. We weren't saying, man, we got to get those trails open. We got to get employment out here. We got to get better foresters. They're going to cost more money to, to tell us how to deal with this, to keep this mill open mm -hmm. while protecting the habitat for the black-tailed deer. We weren't doing that. And so our representatives weren't prioritizing that. So you can prioritize that. I worked in a town called Oak Ridge in Oregon, and it had it's just east of Eugene. and there, it was, you know, three mills, whole industry, economic boom, and completely shut after uh, the Spotted Owl deal. Yeah. Even the McDonald's had closed down. Yeah. It was just things so, were not going well. So I, here's here's what I wish people knew about that. And, and I don't know as much about it as somebody from Oak Ridge, but I also know something on a 10,000 foot level that they may not. Mm -hmm. um, almost half of that timber at the time went to Japan to be cut by mills that were more advanced than ours. They got 20% more out of a log. And we exported the timber that, to Japan raw, which is the, the hallmark of a colonial economy is you send raw materials yeah. out and then they develop it and sell you back the IKEA furniture. Um, anyway, those mill closures had as much to do with the unsustainable nature of the, of the cut and the export of our logs, which I am absolutely against. I'm on, I am an, I am the original America first person. <laughs> and they, people were losing those jobs based on an unsustainable model and a failure of governance to control those exports. And to speak for the people of Oak Ridge, the government was not speaking to them. But the problem is, is that they, propaganda that was delivered to people who were losing those jobs and were angry, like you're talking about, they're mm -hmm. pushing the button. They're, damn it. Mm -hmm. They're pushing that button. Well, they were told that it was the spotted owl that was killing them. It was told that it was the Endangered Species Act. It was the feds. Yeah. Or the environment. And, or the environmentalists. And the pendulum seems, the sort of depressing thing about our moment is that it seems like the pendulum slings from one radical perspective to another and loses all nuance in the middle. It does. And that's Part, that that seems to be related to the new state of information. And what you're talking about is sort of propaganda or branding and getting information, your, your information, which we all feel is the right information, out to people. We all feel our own information. Yeah, is that's right. right. Information. right. Uh, are we living in a time devoid of nuance or has this been consistent in your life and throughout the history that you've read? We're living in a, in a time where nuance is less... Mm -hmm. it, it's it's not devoid, but it's far less. And I, and I always think about this. Um, what do you want? I think about this on a uh, like running a family. There's lots of nuances every day, you know. But as far as like running a, a country, the nuances are kind of lost. Um, but we it doesn't matter 
because in the, in, in in at the end of the day, it is what it is. Um, in the end, the world runs on nuance, mm-hmm. and and reality is nuanced, and so you're gonna have you're, you're you'll either win or lose, fail or succeed based on your reaction to the reality of it, mm-hmm. not the propaganda. And and I do think about during the Civil War. If you go back and you read um, one of my favorite things, dudes, go in the archives and you read this this newspaper called the Squatter Sovereign. It was from Atchison, Kansas, and it was a pro-slavery paper. And they, I mean, it, it's the most bizarre, like propaganda jokes. Um, it, it it would you could see it, it's today. And then you go to Lawrence, Kansas, and I can't remember what the Liberator, I think, you know, and, and the then the Confederates sacked Lawrence. The, the border the border ruffians sacked Lawrence. They killed everybody and burned it down, right? But they had a paper called like the Liberator, and it was all like anti-slavery, abolitionist paper. And the only information in there was like, you know, anti-South. And so we've been here before. It's not like today, but it's not unheard of. And and there was no nuance leading up to the firing on Fort Sumter in 1861. Yeah, at a certain but, point, people lose their tolerance for nuance and and you know, they, take they like the, and they like the cannon. Yeah. And one of the things that happens is there was lots of nuance in 1865 when people came home with their arms shot off and their teeth blown out and tried to get the plantation, tried to get the garden going because the plantation was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, and Atlanta was burned to the ground. There was lots of room for nuance after that. <laughs> yeah. So we we want to try to kind of hold off, right? So, your next book is about past, present, and future public lands. How are we doing in relation? You know, you've now studied. You've studied the history of these things. What uh, What does your historical perspective give you? Or is the prognosis bleak, or is it bright? It is as we choose, over and over. People have to make a choice. Human beings have to make choices. Choices is all. We were talking about Jordan Peterson earlier. It's really close to that. Like, like you get up in the morning and you make a choice about how you want that day to be. If you don't make a choice, you're not going to get anything done. Um, we have a. T- it, it, it's a dangerous moment for public lands, but it always has been since 1891 when they first wrote the Forest Reserve Act. Um, it is not more dangerous than it was in 1953 when Senator McCarran of Nevada confided. Con- revealed a plot in Salt Lake City to take over 230 million acres of public lands and transfer them to the state to sell them off to his friend. Not more dangerous than that. But the idea that we can hold on to 640 million acres of public lands while arguing over things that don't have anything to do with that and not paying attention to that, now that's that's not going to work. Is it a hopeful moment? It is as we choose. When you wake up in the morning, are you hopeful about the day or do you just say, let's just, I've got to put these jeans on, put on these boots and get to work. And perhaps at the end of the day, I can, I'll have five more dollars than I had and I, I, I'm going to work. It, mm-hmm. it, it is as we choose. And that's, that's really important because I'll tell you, it's damned unlikely to have this public lands in the first place. And the, and the Forest Reserve Act of 1891 had a thing called Section 24 in it that was a rider 
that allowed President Harrison to set aside the first, I think it was 13 million acres of like completely abused lands in the West at the head of the watersheds. And that's the basis of the national forest system. And that was about as unlikely as anything could have ever. They had a few people in Congress that noticed Section 24. Mm -hmm. And one guy said, not one shit for scenery from from Missouri or Alabama. I can't remember which. I mean, you you said earlier that you wouldn't be surprised if in the future, these places have Chinese names on them. And I used to live in New York. And something you notice in New York is the insane amount of absentee landlord and real estate owned by Chinese, Saudi Arabian, Russian. Right. Do uh, it. It's saying something like that suggests that you think that these public, you know, the prognosis is bleak and that they will be sold off. I don't think so. I, I think the prognosis is um, in the up and it's it's in our hands. Um, now, I mean, I mean, long term, like really long term, I think that you're going to see either people will either really battle probably not like physical com- combat, but battle in po- politically to retain public lands, they will have to want to do that. Mm-hmm. Because um, the, what, what the Wilkes Brothers purchase in Montana showed me was that there was a demand for some of the least productive land in the whole state. The reason that they bought those ranches fairly cheaply was it's like you couldn't make a living on them. So let, let's, let me go to a nuance here. When the Bundys... I mean, particularly Clive and Bundy, the, the patriarch. Um, that guy, he's he's a very likable person. He he's an interesting man up to a point. He's super tough. Like like if you had a big job to do, like that guy was would would be right there, man. It'd be awesome. So these are fine. I I think they're pretty pretty damn good people. And um, one of the things that they miss the nuance is that cattle prices in the United States have been controlled by Cargill, JBS, and whatever the the big four is. And the people that these guys vote for when they go have worked to reinforce the stranglehold of this cattle producer uh, packing industry monopoly, Mm -hmm. which has kept the price of cows down, which has made the Bundys poorer every year and has facilitated the collapse of these small ranches that the Wilkes brothers could buy for a song. You see what I'm saying? Are they... Uh, the so per- their anger is entirely misplaced. Were they more nuanced uh, when they were rooted in place when they had the standoff? Was in Southern Nevada? Bunkerville. Yeah. yeah. It seems like the sentiment from that the public could get behind more. You, you had some strange people going to Malheur, but... It, there seemed to be a more cohesive ideology to what was going on in Bunkerville, it, or is that just am I am I reading that wrong? That um, my theory is that when you're rooted in place, you better understand things, and so you can retain nuance. But maybe that's not the case. Uh, I don't think that's too far off. Um, Bunkerville is the Bundy's town, and um, the gathering of those cattle on that land by the Bureau of Land Management, like like. In my opinion, like that land, it can't support those cows. It, it's it's just a it's the Mojave Desert, yeah. And it's Gold Butte National Monument, which is incredibly cool. But Bundy's cows are kind of all over the place, and then they're feral. They're declared feral or estray cows all the way down to Lake Mead. So there's all these weird cows like living out there, barely and dying and stuff. But so that the gather by the Bureau of Land Management was I, it was under the law. It was legal. 
but they didn't have the power to, the, to enforce it when push came to shove, and they had to release the cows. And the, you're, you're, you are correct in that that was Bunkerville. That was his place. And people around there said, well, that was too much. They shouldn't have taken his cows. They should have continued to negotiate with a guy who refuses to negotiate. But they they did they they did something that they couldn't have, the the government did something that they couldn't really enforce. It's strange because both Bunkerville and Mel here seem not to be emblematic of any sort of deeper ideal, uh, but they've been blown up to represent these large things. And I, it seems like as you've interrogated them, it it may uh, their foundation may not really uh, share these ideals. It seems like it's mostly self interested as opposed to expressing, you, you know, being the, the tip of the sword for public lands and, the, and range land or, you, you know, mining rights and logging right. and the forest service, you know. I, I wonder, I, 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 would, I would pursue this further, um, but I wonder if they understand that what they're arguing for is corporate feudalism that has no place for them whatsoever. And that's a, a jump that they would just go like, I don't know what that is. I don't care. So are they real idealists? Because my, my feeling is that real idealists don't necessarily need to think about the implications of their ideals. Yes. And Clive and Bundy, I think it, it has become that over time. He's kind of charismatic in his, his utter conviction, you know, in, in it, that he's right. Um, it makes him charismatic. And I, but, uh, they are, they're not, they, they have been used by those who would, would further the cause of corporate feudalism. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. Like if you were to take away the restrictions on mining in, in the United States, well, there's not that many of them. The 1872 mining law is a disaster that should have been reformed in 1873. Mm-hmm. Um, but they those people wouldn't they they would get a job at a mine and then it would all be poisoned and they would just be like they their their little house and mm-hmm. on the Virgin River would be worth nothing. It's what, what is the positive takeaway from this? How do we move forward? Is uh, how do you build a coalition of these people locally if there's such an information war going on? And it seems like the information war from the perspective of public lands is being lost. I don't know. I I think it's being I think it's been one. Um, I think it's being lost on the macrocosm in America today. I think it's being won on the local. Um, it, people are, are at, you know what it is. Okay, what we need a, a a nuanced vision. We need a hybrid of the federal ownership of public lands and management and local input. We need more Native American tribal input into public lands management to, for for positive reasons. Mm. And um, so what it, what it is is you can't just have the big fist, right? You have to kind of play the piano, and it's not as much fun mm-hmm. you, you, when you take the empty beer can and smash it on your head and yep. you tell everybody, "God damn it!" You know, <laughs> yep. it's not near as much fun. Uh-oh. But in the long run, you get to keep what you want. And with the beer can smashing and the yelling and and the the punching and hitting and all that stuff, you end up not getting to keep what you want. So maybe if everything is messy right now, it's an indication that things are in the right place. I agree. I I, I totally believe that. <laughs> and and again, when things are really messy, what you want to do is like get the vacuum out and and clean and and you you don't just like burn the car mm-hmm. because the dog took a dump in the seat, right? 
you don't like set fire to your pickup on while a, you're on the road because the dog took a dump in the seat. On a really bad day, you might. I get the impulse to. You do, and you do. But yeah. but what happens? Now you're going to burn your shoe leather, your Kinetrex. Yeah. You're going to be hitchhiking. Your life is going to be quantifiably poor. That's what I'm talking about. And you'll feel so good as it burns. You'll feel so good as it burns. And I imagine the guys who fired the cannon into Fort Sumter. Mm. They're going to watch this, you know, hold my cider. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, and then, you know, five years later, it wasn't that much fun. I mean, I'm I am down with the impulse to set fire to the pickup truck. Like, like I've spent most of my life, I feel like working against that, you know, and a personal a personal path to work against that. I mean, I came up in a place where like people, the people we admired the most, like had like tattoos. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's in nowadays that's that's referred to as the accelerationist movement as well. You know that. So the accelerationist movement is is that with climate change, with overpopulation, with resource depletion, with um, the things people like, let's just drive it and get it over with. And um, okay, watch it burn. Yeah, the watch it burn crew, and that that has an interesting left and right, you know, component. Yeah. Right. Um, environmentalists and like resource destroyers, mm-hmm. profiteers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's fascinating because uh, that one, the accelerationist impulse actually is a nihilistic impulse. It's just, it's simply to, to it's a self, it's setting fire to the pickup truck. It also enables you to live your life as an individual without guilt, without, right. you know, you're gonna, you can be, it's sort of a hedonistic approach. Exactly. It's kind of like taking dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I ain't gonna pay attention to that. Burn it all down. You know, um, I just, uh, I look at like, you're, when you're, you're talking about localism earlier, I believe now I will, I, well, I, I change my mind a lot, but I believe right now very strongly that the future is hyper local. And that doesn't mean that we'll get rid of the federal public lands at all but the future is hyper local it's it's food security at the at the local or county level it's energy security through probably through you know renewables where you're not connected to the guy who could turn up your natural gas bill to five hundred dollars and you can't pay it Mm -hmm. or like when the gas went up the other two months ago to five dollars like i hope that people thought about the i'm being held hostage to um to to these folks that control these levers, and what could I do to, to get away from that? That's what I think. I I became like a much more of a prepper in the last like six months because I felt that I I feel the same thing everybody else feels. It's out of control. The pandemic broke the supply chains, and then like 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 with these cattle producers, I'm just gonna pay cash to a friend of mine for a steer, and I'm gonna pay him. More than you'll get at the market, mm-hmm. and I, but I have the luxury to do that. I live in a place where that's possible. To shoot an elk, you know, an elk, I, you know how much an elk meat is probably twenty five hundred bucks to shoot like a cow, which means you don't have to spend twenty five hundred bucks at the supermarket. Yeah, I don't ever want it to go that way. Mm-hmm. Like that's why we have the Lacey Act, mm-hmm. which you can't sell wild game. But the truth of it is, 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 is if you can be more self sufficient now. On myself, it makes me feel better. I have a huge garden. We, you know, a, a massive portion of this sort of 
I don't know if, if public lands is an environmentalist movement because I think it's it's bigger than that. But a, a big part of the coalition who are fighting for these things uh, is really concerned about climate change. And something that alienates me, I assume it's going on because a lot of scientists say so. But, you know, it seems to be a big distraction. I understand why people in cities get on board with it because there's not that much that they can do on a personal level. You're so encompassed by systems that they have much less ability to separate themselves from systems in a sort of prepper way. But it seems to distract a huge amount of the conversation from local issues that we're able to deal with, you know, ecosystem resilience and kind of blow it up to this macro scale where my feeling is that at a very broad level where it's very hard to understand problems, it's very hard to understand what even is going on. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm right there with you on that. So, I, and I'm, I guess I'm persona non grata, like in the climate change world now, even though I, I've never been a science denier. Hmm. I, I love science and I, I enjoy climate science. Um, but in my time here, man, I have watched people in the environmental movement abandon the most hands-on actionable things in favor of talking to people who are glazed over about climate change. And I always go back to that scene in um I think it's called The Lord of War with Nicholas Cage. Oh yeah. And they're in that they're in Monrovia, Liberia during the height of the what's called the Taylor Wars, right? And he's making a fortune. And those black prostitutes, those women are there with him. And he says, you know, he said, I think you're really beautiful. I and but I, I think you you probably have AIDS. And she goes, look out the window. She goes, we're all going to be dead tomorrow. She goes, you're worried about something that kills you in six months, 10 years? Mm -hmm. He goes, what are you, nuts? And I've looked at that as a climate change thing forever. I was like going, dude, they are they they poured chicken grease in the mulberry fork of the Black Warrior River system in Alabama. Could we talk about that's now? The fish are all dead. Like people's properties are destroyed. Their property rights have been violated by this pollution. The river is it's one of the most beautiful rivers in Alabama. I was like, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen. I, I come from a species that's evolved from to 100,000 years of worrying about if we got enough mammoth meat for tomorrow. And you're asking me to worry about something that's going to happen in 2080, maybe? Yeah. I, I don't get it. doesn't work for me. There's other people. Again, I'm glad there's people that it works for. I think it's and they can watch out for us. If it gets you engaged in these things, then that's excellent. Shame, I think, is a fundamental human experience. You know, from Adam and Eve yeah. in the garden to the fall of man. Yeah. You know, we're we're still ashamed for Christ's crucifixion. Yeah. There's also, as you look through history, a constant sense of the impending apocalypse. Oh, and, and it's people very, people and, are obsessed with it, and, and at every point they believe it a hundred percent. And so it's very hard to disentangle yourself in the present moment and go, "Is this?" Yeah, you know, is this the constant impending apocalypse, or is this really here? Maybe a bit of both. I don't or is Jim Jones going to, you know, get the calendar out next week and it didn't happen? Yeah. And he goes, oh, well, I, I got a new revelation. It happens yeah. next week, and now we all got to like go into apocalypse mode again. I, what I think it's fascinating though is that environmentalists, who we would assume are these deep engagement people who love like praying mantises and botany and so um are as prone to apocalypse belief as like the most fundamentalist guy down in, in at, a, at a snake handling church it, it's a it's a it's an impulse common to all of us i guess i personally don't have it 
just like I'm an outlier in that way. I just see things. I, I've got these buffalo skulls. I just see things going on and on mm-hmm. and on and always changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, dispense with traditional religion at your own risk because you'll replace it with something. Uh, very good. But, uh, but here we have it. Uh, like like that Kurt Vonnegut book, um, um, one where he has Bokanonism. He is, um, God, I can't read. It's not slapstick. Um, anyway, he, they, they just invent their own religion because he says, well, you gotta have something. And yep. it's, they have Bokanonism. And, uh, man has to, man has to sit. Bird gotta fly. Man has to ask why, why, why. Um, something has to, bird gotta land. Man gotta tell himself he understands. And that was like, <laughs> that was like the essence of the religion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, but I don't, I, I'm, I'm not a believer. My, my grandmother was a believer in the, in the end times. And when she was dying, she looked to be really old. Um, she was astounded that it hadn't happened within her ninety years. It's that's always astounding. True believers, Jesus will return in our day. But you know, at the same time, if you listen to uh, Amazing Grace, they say when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less hours to sing his praise than the moment we first begun, mm-hmm. which means that time means nothing in eternity. It means nothing in a spiritual sense. So these people, we are deluding ourselves because, because the very essence of, of, of um, like God is beyond time. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a delusion. It's an aberration of human beings. Mm-hmm. It's not going to end just because your three score and 10 is up. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It might. <laughs> but but I think the shame associated with it is what shame. impacts us in the real in the real world, and it's something that I see in people's relation to nature. And it it, it bothers me. You've made a life where you are very much engaging with nature as as part of it, and to view it as something which you know humans are only the destroyers, yep. only the sulliers, the ravenous. Like it 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 bothers me as a. Uh, sort of utopian vision of the past. And yep. It's as equally essentialist and without nuance as the other side of it. I, I totally agree. So here's here's the thing. So um, Bill McKibben's first book, big book, on um, the end of nature, which I absolutely do not like that book. I, f- I find it to be so anthropocentric it's absurd. But I like Bill McKibben in other ways. Um, but he has a thing where you're on the 405 in LA, you know, locked in traffic, and he said it feels like sin. And I was like, I, I'm a little bit too Nietzschean for that, <laughs> you know. I don't, I don't know that I can buy that, you know. Beyond that's like a, that's like a, uh, that's kind of a human idea. But I would say that this idea of humans as being a destroyer, the Shiva, the destroyer, the destroying force. Um, I think there's a, there's a, a, a litmus test you could give yourself. I think you could, you can actually. You can actually see this and you can say, is this piece of land that I'm on, is it more filled with life than it was when I showed up? Mm. Or what are, are my actions working towards a negative force or a positive force? And that's one reason I'm super addicted into this pollinator belts. And I'm like, I'm, I'm all in on this thing and restoration of habitat around America, a restoration of creeks. You just get so much life-affirming bang for your buck mm. for the most minimal type of planting freaking milkweeds. You can see this 
burgeoning of life, positive life energy. Whereas when you clear out for the new Saturn plant down in Alabama and you just have that red dirt that's packed, you have a negative force going on there. Now you may, you're trading one thing or another that you want, right? But it's very negative. Uh, how and, about your place? The, how has the abundance of life changed in your place over your time here and in Alabama? Because I think that could be a good diagnostic I, of how we're doing. I think we, we the, the human beings population and needs are drawing the energy. Mm. Oh, and so there is less available for other species and other other ecosystems that that are filled with lives that we don't even understand. Like you're talking about soil health, you know, mm -hmm. we don't have any idea how all this works. And I do think that we are commandeering a, an inordinate proportion of the energy now for our own needs. Mm. And that's a function of, of population. Um, microcosmically though like in this yard right here this garden produces an enormous amount of food and we have all the pollinator stuff planted and there's more stuff going on out here than it was when i moved here on our place in alabama um that i inherited um we need some active management in order to maximize the amount of um ecological process that's available there there's a sort of chernobyl effect that people i think uh on the shame side of things you know harken back to is like we we are the impediment to nature you step out and nature you know uh Nausgaard says nature is uh, immensely abundant and i think he means it just uh it's resilient and it does come back but it it seems to me there's an active role that we can play in in, in aiding that and we're not going to have a Thankfully, the world will not be a Chernobyl uh, with cancerous wolves. Right. I don't know where the question is there. Uh, well, the answer is is, is um, if we are cursed as people, so so um, shame can be a, a positive or a negative, right? You yeah. can be ashamed of stealing all the money from the the bank right. or the church, mm -hmm. and then you can pay all that money back. It can it can cause you to say you've done something, you've wronged someone, mm -hmm. and you're ashamed of it. And then you go and try to make that right. So shame can be positive or negative. Um, so I think that we should be ashamed of having like it's it's nuanced, right? Because um, but we should be ashamed of what we did to the bison. We should be ashamed of what we did in the conquest of North America, like like the Marias massacre on the Blackfeet. Um, should and, we? Should you and I be ashamed of these things? Or sort of no, no. You ashamed? don't have to be. You don't have to be personally ashamed. Mm -hmm. You have to acknowledge that this was a shameful act of which you are somewhat a beneficiary. We're sitting in this house. It's in the heart of the Blackfeet right, Nation. Right, okay. So I'm definitely a beneficiary of of a um, a a war that included shameful acts. I'm I'm a little different than other people in that I don't necessarily see war as neither bad or good. It's simply something that people do. Mm -hmm. But that war did include shameful acts, which included the divestment of one group of people. The arrow, do you know the word arrogation? It's it's to take something to lay claim to something to which you have no like declarable right. And so there was an the arrogation of of vast parts of people's territory. I think that's a uh, that's a recognition of shame. It's a recognition, a shameful act, but it's not necessarily like an individual feeling of shame because what seems like I don't feel it, it would be a dislocated shame if you yourself as an individual, like if it impacted your movements about life in your head. I think you know? that would be a, uh, well. I think that'd be a negative use of the shame. And dislocated shame, I think, becomes 
distorted and that's where that's where it begin, begins to go in the wrong direction yep. shame that's a good point shame uh is a very useful tool we have developed for good reason it helps us be good people right it can it can it can it, uh, when right. we experience it i think as a person you, you know with and things close to us right and um, and actionable mm-hmm. as well that's another thing you're yeah. saying um but but one of the things about that is is as far as history goes and shame and history, is we carry the baggage of history with us to, to wherever we're going. And that's that's fine. You just you recognize the failures of the past, but to, but today is a new day. And so you you can't be bound by the failures of the past. In in the same way we're talking about in the Gilded Age, it is not a new Gilded Age. It is like the Gilded Age. Many things are similar, mm-hmm. you know. Like, like, but there is no place where you can go, oh, that was perfect. Mm-hmm. Let's recreate that. That's got to be the biggest delusion that people could ever have. So um, when I was thinking about the McKibben book and the shame and all and, and the sin of it, you can choose to act. Though. And it's it, here's, a, here's a very positive thing. We can choose to act and do active restoration of ecosystems to build ecological resilience. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that will help us, more of us, prosper in the time of climate change that's coming, whether we like it or not. I, I, I think the science is clear on that. Mm-hmm. So why not do that, given that it works on so many different levels and in a positive way? To address the alleged sins of the past, where we killed all the buffalo and we blew up uh, the little Rocky Mountains for gold that went to other global markets, you know, and left a cyanide heap leach pit, you know, like that was a that was a, a pretty bad thing. Yeah. Um. So let's don't do that again, and, and we'll be better off. And people talk about buffalo rose, but I think you, you know it, it's clear when it's plumes for. Rich ladies' hats and buffalo yep. robes. Okay, this is a bad thing, and it's a clear bad. But the question—I uh, think the cl- question that climate change abuts against is development now. And what about electricity to keep that baby on a ventilator or whatever? Yes, in you know Somalia, uh, and and we've now there's a there's a fine play of that, and it's it seems harder than buffalo pits. You know, it is. It's way harder, but in it's the issue of our time. So here's a here's a big problem I have. I don't have an answer to this, but what many of the solutions to climate change or or the climate change thing that what they say is we're going to give you all of this renewable energy and all, so you don't have to change. Yeah. <laughs> it blows my mind. It's like you don't have to worry about how many people there are. You don't have to worry about ever like being cold. Mm-hmm. We're going to fix it for you if you do this. So, and that the truth is, is the paradigm which gave, created our addiction to fossil fuels and the release of the, the powers of ancient sunlight into the atmosphere. That's the problem. The, the endless growth paradigm. Yeah. The idea that we're somehow separate from nature is the is the problem. I think endless growth is greed. And, the, and so. And laziness, too. Yeah. You don't want to get cold. You don't want to be hot. And so like, if we frame consumption in that way. What do you think about things like, uh, I've just recently listened to your interview with Yvonne Chouinard and this sort of privatized model of consumption in which we can protect, you know, or restore the environment and be participants in it as we consume in, you know, a a fairly traditional sense of consumption. Is that 
Is that a path forward? Doesn't work. Okay. Doesn't work. The path forward is 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 well, it'd be what we choose. We're going to navigate a difficult period of time as the human population gets to be whatever it ends up being. And my belief is that we can choose like local food security and whatnot with pollinator belts and all that. We can choose positive models as we go through, but we're going to be under a lot of stress. And the, the paradigm that this is not important, that we can do whatever we want, that's the one that's going to be questioned. Shenard questioned that early on. Mm-hmm. He just looked at it in the same way Ed Abbey did, but Shenard was more was less of a literary person and more of an act mm-hmm. person, an a, a man of action. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just said, regenerative agriculture—it's the future, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like spraying these sweet fields from here to Chester, Montana, until there's no life on them. That's not going to be part of the 22nd century. I, I mean, that's just obviously not going to work. And so you might as well begin these experiments with Patagonia money to do regenerative agriculture and try to work in a change in government to re-incentivize food security from local people and de-incentivize the mass accumulation of all this land out here for exported wheat, which is sprayed with a chemical, which means that they did, there's no life on it other than the wheat grass. That's not going to be a thing in, in another thousand years. So, so do you think that participating in the same, that we can create change by participating in the same systems that are creating the problem? You're going to participate in them whether you like it or not. Okay. Because you drove over here in a rig. I'm driving a 97 Sierra. Mm-hmm. One of the only thing I don't choose to participate in because I don't have any money is a new car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We are participants whether you like it or not. Okay. We are we are travelers in the human but we, realm. We, but we have to participate at a certain level, but you're not completely committed to that because you hunt for me and right. raise, you know, you're there's some level of agency. Yeah, I raise my children as minimalist uh, as I could without without being a fanatic. Not to harp on Patagonia, but it seems like a useful counterpoint. Is it a contradictory approach to solving a problem in the system that creates the problem? I don't think it's contradictory. I think that it is a a a seeking of a new current within an an uh, a prevailing paradigm. So, so one of the things that we talk about in conservation a lot is you, you need firebrands and renegades on all sides, right? In, including like the anti-government movement. You need people questioning government. I'm, I, I'm 100% on that. But, so you, but then you need to have the narrow corridor. You need to have people who will act within the, what we call the parameter. Everybody calls it. I don't call it this. The parameters of the possible. You know, and one of the things about public land management is you say, well, what are the parameters of the possible here? And and you'll have somebody who is like a um, very much a preservationist and they just say, we just want as much old growth timber as possible. We want the forest to be unmolested by man, you know. And then somebody goes, well, but like down here in the Swan Valley, like these people need jobs. And I'm afraid that if you keep them out of the forest, they're not going to support the forest at all. And some they will then actively work to have the forest like privatized. Anything's better than this, we can't use it. So you have to have people using it. Um, and and you will fight with that balance, right? But you're working in the paradigm. You're still in the paradigm because that you can't you can't really like 
revolutionary movements have not really been that successful other than the American Revolution in 1776 for us. Hmm. I'm not sure that that was a revolution. I think a revolution implies like a radical upheaval of power. And right. it seems like that was a violent transition of power. You know, all of the people who were in power at the beginning of the revolution on the state side were in power at the end of That's the revolution. That's true. That's true. Right. One of the things they did, war, one of the revolutionary acts that was done, that, I agree with that, mm-hmm. but was to write the Constitution, which then limited right. the power of those who won. Yeah. I was like, damn, there's a paradigm shift. Unbelievably pressing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that was a paradigm shift. Yeah, um, mostly like um, like in Liberia during the Taylor Wars. You know, Charles Taylor he he won. He was a very interesting person. And he was he had charged with embezzlement. He got money in Massachusetts. He was working at a convenience store, mm-hmm. and he took that money and went back to Liberia. And he took over. He won. I mean, he won. But he didn't like write a constitution limiting Charles Taylor's power. He caused incredible amounts of trouble. And, and 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 ruled as a dictator, you know. So like that one, that was not a good idea. The 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 original revolution in Liberia in the eighties with Samuel Doe, um, just didn't really work to better the cause of individual liberty and prosperity in Liberia. But I, the United States won because they wrote the Constitution did represent a shift in a paradigm. Right. No, totally. Yeah. And I, I think of Nicaragua too, you know, like there's whatever, Daniel Ortega. Mm-hmm. He's still like like running things incompetently mm-hmm. since nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. <laughs> but like 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 if that's revolution, sign me out. You yeah. know, I don't want it. I and I think that part of why I come to you is because uh historical in in order to determine where we are, we need historical perspective in that uh if the middle way seems to be the right way. Uh, we need to figure out: Are we are we on the middle way? Do you feel like- that's right? And, and is there a, is there a place for a middle way in a paradigm which is destroying everything around you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's here's what I think on this. Um, I think that we are not looking for revolution in any way in the in the classical sense. Mm. In the same way you're talking about the U.S. Revolution wasn't really that. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for that. Mm. What we're looking for is. And we are, ha- and it's happening right this second. What we are looking for is the questioning of the current paradigm and the building of, say, a million small paradigms. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this with with people of they could be super far right wing too, mm-hmm. or they can be super far left wing, but they are, or they can be centrist, which I consider myself mm-hmm. political centrist. Um, they are gardening. And they're planting the pollinator belts. Kyle Leibarger, I did that podcast with in Alabama, has 144,000 followers on Instagram. And all he does is go around and look at native plants and ask people, consult with landowners about expanding the biodiversity and and, eco- and ecosystems on their land. 144,000 people are on Instagram following him. And so that's a huge shift. The farmer's market things in America, that's a huge shift. The pandemic showed us that the that that the supply lines are fragile, and that government has a limited amount of ability to do things for you that you really want to have done. That's <laughs> putting it mildly. Yeah. Um. So we are going. It's it's a paradigm shift that we're looking for. Hunting is a huge part of it because you cannot hunt in a destroyed landscape. They're, the animals aren't going to be there. So unless you become a steward, you're not going to be doing that. So you, the impetus is upon you to be a conservationist and a steward and to learn as much as you can. That's a shift in the paradigm. The old paradigm was 
go get your tasty meat down at the Win Dixie, dude. Why would you get out of the chair when you got TV and can can work an extra shift and get the meat at the Win Dixie? Why would people do that? Because they don't believe in that. They don't want that. It's it's the shooting it out of the corn feeder again. You people, the paradigm is shifting. Will it shift fast enough to save us? What would that even look like? I mean, when I when I look at the climate change, people talk about saving the planet. What does that look like so that we can have 20 billion people? So that there'll be no no life left in the oceans? Right? I mean, what are we talking about saving, right? I mean, I'm talking about shifting a paradigm so that when this population event comes to a decline, there's going to be a billion, two billion people around the world who know how to hunt and where the fish live and why that creek is so important and what those plants are like Kyle Leibarger's doing in Alabama. And they're going to be happy. They're going to be just as happy and just as unhappy as me and you are today. There's going to be like beautiful gals and dudes dancing, you know, in this faraway place that doesn't include a constantly expanding human population with a constantly expanding like portfolio of stuff I just got to have. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I see it in my vision. And what we do to get there in our three score and 10 is to like teach little kids about what plants there are show them how to catch fish and why fish are in there in the first place. They talk about a, a life that does your validity does not depend on what how big a truck you drive or what kind of shirt you got. What is real? Dirt, blood, weather. Once you get that, you're building a paradigm for the ages. Navigating to get there, it's gonna be rough. It's, hell, it was rough in the Civil War. It was rough when Genghis Khan was galloping into your town. It was rough if you were on one of the horses riding with the horde. <laughs> it's always been rough. That's the nature of humanity. And within it, there's these fantastic levels of joy. And I noticed that those are mostly experienced in the natural world. Inside the thing we started talking about. Not separate. I mean, I would love to start up an F, a brand new F-250 to go get my firewood this weekend, but yeah, that would dwindle. Mm. Whereas going and hanging out with my kids on the river, it doesn't dwindle. Thanks, dude. Yeah.